Good evening, and welcome to Ideas. I'm Paul Kennedy with the concluding episode of To Hurt or To Heal. In this series, David Cayley has been examining the rationale underlying our criminal justice system in the light of the emerging movement for restorative justice. This movement has argued for a healing justice that tries to restore social harmony rather than just punish wrongdoers. One of the obstacles it faces is a political climate in which public safety and victims' rights continue to be equated with more punishment rather than less. Tonight's program examines this climate and then asks about the institution which is expected to ensure public safety, the prison. What can it do? What can't it do for a society that hopes for so much from it? To Hurt or to Heal, Part 5, by David Cayley. One hears again and again that the public is upset about crime, that the public lacks confidence in the criminal justice system, that the public wants judges to lock people up for longer periods. The media say so, politicians say so, and public opinion surveys seem to back them up. But survey research on public attitudes to crime and punishment also shows something that is less frequently noted. What people say they want changes with what they know. Tell them more about the circumstances or give them alternatives and they become significantly less punitive. One of the researchers who has demonstrated this interesting effect is Tony Dube, a professor of criminology at the University of Toronto. He and his colleagues conducted surveys in which they first presented people with bare situations and then offered alternatives. We did things like ask people whether in a particular case somebody should be imprisoned. And as soon as you put alternatives to imprisonment, they're less likely to want imprisonment. Or as soon as you make the costs of imprisonment uh, salient to people, they're, they're less likely to want it. When we ask people whether even a, a kid, 10-year-old kid who'd done very serious, a serious violent act should be brought to court, people say, yes, they should. In our survey, in the, it was a cross-Canada survey, 70% of people said, send him to court. Well, why do they say that? that? Because they're thinking about it as being court or nothing, because that's really what we ask them. You give them another choice and say, well, there, there are other alternatives. You can take the young person to, to youth court, or you could deal with him in the child welfare mental health system. What's your choice there? All of a sudden, it goes from 70% wanting them to go to court to about 23%, I think, wanting them to go to court. It's a huge, huge drop. And really, it's because people say, oh, there is an alternative. We can actually deal with this in a more productive way. People have the understanding that punishing a 10-year-old who's probably been over-punished already isn't necessarily going to make their worlds any safer or make this kid's life any better. There's the same kind of research which shows that people aren't as punitive as soon as they know something about the offender. One of my graduate students gave a number of different kinds of scenarios to people and said, what do you think should happen to them? And it seemed like almost any kind of information you gave to people about an offender, they became less punitive. I think because they're thinking of the person as a real person, as a real person who might be sitting across the table or might be living across the street from them. So when they get that information, they look for something which is a little bit more productive. Tony Dube's research shows punishment as a reflex that will often give way to more considered and more compassionate responses 
when more is known. But it is frequently the more immediate, less thoughtful response that seems to dominate the politics of crime. The reason, Tony Dube thinks, lies in the kind of appeal punishment makes. Punishment's easy. From a politician's perspective, or from a newspaper columnist's perspective, punishment's the easiest thing. You have a theory which people don't challenge until they start thinking about it, which says that punishment works. The fact that the research shows that punishment doesn't work is irrelevant to this. A parliamentarian says, I'm going to show my constituents that I am against evil. And not only am I against evil, but I'm going to solve the problem of evil in our society. So I'm going to sponsor a bill, I'm going to introduce a bill, I'm going to change the legislation, which makes things more punitive. So that the parliamentarian can turn around to his or her constituents and say, look, I've done exactly what you wanted. I have condemned evil by making the punishments harsher, and I'm making you safer by doing that. That sounds much simpler than my saying, I'm going to take kids who are 10 years old who are having real problems in school, and I'm going to address the problems, and I'm going to work on them. So two or three years later, we will actually have fewer kids who are doing very serious kinds of violence in their early adolescence. The relationship between that, although it can be shown in research, is not as clear. And, but the second thing is it's taken me eight times as long to explain it. A politician can say, we want harsher penalties, bring back the death penalty, pull out their fingernails, whatever it is that these twits are saying. The appeal of punishment is well illustrated by our current treatment of young offenders. Despite the widespread impression that the Young Offenders Act is almost laughably lenient, Canada actually sends a higher percentage of young offenders to jail than any other Western country, including the United States, a policy which Tony Dube thinks makes no sense. We're sending 25,000 young people to prison every year. When you look at what they're there for, it's hard for me to believe that we couldn't find some other way of dealing with these problems. Of the 25,000, about three quarters are offenses which aren't the ones which are really upsetting the public. They aren't the murders, the manslaughters, the aggravated assaults, the sexual assaults, and so on. They're the thefts, the uh, failures to appear in court, the breach of probation, break-ins. Break-in is our most serious property offense. My suspicion is that many break-ins, if we were creative, we could find many or even most of the break-ins. We could find ways of satisfying society, the victim, outside of the use of prison for these kids. They're going to go to prison for three months, six months at the most for these kinds of offenses because they aren't all that serious. And at the, at the end of that, we've accomplished nothing. Prisons are very destructive, grim, unproductive parts of our community. I mean, they really are the end with almost nothing good that can come of them. When you talk to kids in prison and say, what did you get out of, of prison? They'll say, well, you know, it, it at least forced me to go to school or I had to give up smoking, you know, or whatever it might be when I went to prison. And you say, right, this is, the, this is our best way of getting a kid to go to school because we force him to do it because it's the only thing he can do in the mornings when he's in the custodial facility. Surely we can uh, find better ways to even accomplish that goal. 
so I think we can look at these in a more interesting way and find more interesting things to do. The new Youth Criminal Justice Act, which is currently before Parliament, does set out more productive, more restorative alternatives for the kind of offenses that now account for the three-quarters of incarcerated youth that Tony Dube just mentioned. But the besetting problem remains. Despite conclusive research showing that there is no connection between the amount of imprisonment and the amount of crime, the belief persists that punishment is the best way to prevent crime. Our problem is that we link crime to the operations of the criminal justice system. We link crime to a more punitive or to a less punitive system. And therefore, the way in which we're going to be dealing with crime is we're going to tinker with our criminal justice system. That's just simply wrong. The way you deal with crime is to deal with the problems that create crime, that create crime in particular groups of people and not others. A lot is known about that in terms of early experiences that kids have, in terms of support that they have in school, in terms of things which happen to them in adolescence. We can intervene more or less any time we want to, and we can reduce crime. But we, what we would do if we were interested in reducing crime would be to work on crime, not the criminal justice system work on the criminal justice system separately. The United States has a huge incarceration rate. It could reduce that dramatically by changing criminal justice policies. It wouldn't have any effect whatsoever on its crime rate. Delinking crime and punishment is politically feasible, Tony Dube believes, because politicians could appeal to the more thoughtful public attitudes that his research has shown are latent within apparently more punitive stances. But at the moment, things appear to be going in the opposite direction. One index is the number of private members' bills pertaining to criminal justice that are currently before Parliament. Mary Campbell has kept a close eye on these bills as the Director of Criminal Justice Policy for the Ministry of the Solicitor General, a position she just left to take a new job training judges. And she says that she has recently seen a dramatic change. There's been an explosion of private members' bills in the past year. By my count, there are now over 60 private members' bills dealing with criminal justice in one way or another. Out of those 60-plus bills, there are 11 or 12 that are absolutely about lengthening sentences. There are a couple of more that would reinstate the death penalty. There are another 10 or 12 that would criminalize behavior that currently is not criminalized. You know, it's very much that law and order sort of focus. What it means is that now more than ever you see single-issue bills before the House. Uh, they're not connected to any broader agenda for criminal law reform. They're not connected to any more sort of coherent approach to whatever the problem is. Um, they tend to be very ad hoc and very... Um, focused on a particular constituency or a particular set of concerns. One of the things that worries Mary Campbell about the recent upsurge in private members' bills is the underlying politicization of criminal justice policy that it reflects. As a civil servant, she has been involved for many years in the development of criminal justice legislation, a process that she thinks should be based on a coherent body of knowledge and a careful weighing of evidence. The proper role of the civil service, in her view, is to bring this knowledge forward. But this becomes much harder to do, she says, when politicians discount evidence and treat criminal justice policy 
as an entirely political question. I think that the best public service is one that is knowledge-based and one that does not attempt to play on the political field. I'm not here to assess uh, the political benefits or risks of any particular policy. That is for others in this building to do. And I think, unfortunately, there has been a little bit of a drift in recent years, uh, moving away from expertise or experience or knowledge base and moving more to a model of general management, if you like. And so a good public servant is someone who is flexible and adaptable and can work in one environment one day and another environment uh, six months or a year from now. There may be a role for that at a certain level, at a fairly high level, but I think it is my role to say, for example, here is the research on long sentences. Here is the research on long sentences and deterrence. We know that longer sentences do not deter. That is the knowledge that I bring to you. Now, if you decide uh, you still want longer sentences for some other reason, that's fine. But I think my role is to provide that kind of knowledge and, and research. I see a weakening of that in recent years. The other aspect of politicization of public servants, I think, is that the pressure to become politicized comes from elsewhere. It's not so much that I am taking on a political role, but that others may perceive that in me. And I think that that relates to the absence of strong voices on the left side at a political level. And so if I, for example, put forward a statement that longer sentences do not deter, there has been an increasing tendency to see that as a political statement or as an ideological statement and to be put into a dialogue, sometimes with members of parliament, that's really inappropriate for me to be in as a public servant. The decline of the left and the politicization of crime that Mary Campbell points to have occurred in almost all Western democracies in recent years. The result has been that crime policy has become more of a political commodity, offering enticing possibilities of political advantage on the one hand, but also posing new dangers for politicians who risk being outbid on the right if they take complex, considered positions. Another civil servant who's been at the center of the fray over criminal justice policy is Ola Ingstrup, the head of the Federal Correctional Service of Canada, the CSC as it's called, which administers all prison sentences longer than two years. Ingstrup has twice been the commissioner of the CSC, holding the position from 1988 to 1992 and then taking it on again in 1996. During his second tenure, he has been a frequent target of the Sun newspaper chain, the Government of Ontario, and the Reform, now Alliance Party. A recent article by Michael Harris in the National Post describing the CSC's treatment of prisoners as a system of unbridled appeasement gives some of the flavor of these attacks. But Ole Ingstrup has held his ground and continues to insist that the CSC is in fact enjoying outstanding success in fulfilling its mandate. 
we measure ourselves against certain criteria. In our case, it is what kind of contribution do we make to a safer society? And we measure that primarily through the recidivism rate, which means uh, the number of offenders who commit new offenses after they have left our institutions, but while they are still under our care in the community. And the amount of crime committed by offenders being released from our institutions is going down. And it's been going down over a number of years, and it is now at a level that is probably the lowest one can find anywhere. And certainly uh, less than half of what it was just 10, 15 years ago. So in that sense, we are making a greater contribution to the protection of Canadians through what we're doing. One of the reasons for this lower recidivism, Ole Ingstrup says, has been the CSC's success in supervising prisoners who have been released but are still under sentence. Interestingly, the number of offenders in the community is one of the things for which he has come under attack. A couple of years ago, Ingstrup suggested that there should be a 50-50 split between the number of offenders in institutions and the number on conditional release, and the CSC set this as a goal. This goal was immediately attacked by the Premier of Ontario, amongst others, as a quota system, which would see criminals go free not because they posed no danger, but in order to fulfill the quota. The CSC denies that there has ever been anything like a quota in that sense. But there is clear evidence, Ole Ingstrup says, that offenders who spend more of their sentence under supervision in the community are less likely to reoffend. What we know is this. If we release people somewhere between one-third and two-thirds of the sentence, their recidivism rate after the whole sentence has been served, including the community part of it, is about half of the recidivism that we see in the group that has been released at a much later stage in the sentence. Now, uh, it doesn't just mean that uh, therefore everybody should go out uh, much earlier. It's not what I'm saying. It means that we're pretty good at assessing what is the high risk and what is the low risk. So we keep the highest risks longer than uh, the low risk cases, obviously. But it also indicates to me that a longer period of supervision has uh, a positive impact on uh, uh, on recidivism. We see that over and over again. And one thing that we are looking at is to increase the program delivery in the community after they have been released. Often it is uh, booster programs uh, where people have taken programs in the institution and we continue to keep these skills alive uh, uh, when they get out of prisons, deliver that in the community. And it seems to us that when we continue our programs into the community that the recidivism rate is even uh, lower. I also think that um, a number of approaches that we have taken in terms of uh, getting to know the inmates a lot better, a lot earlier in the sentence, has made it possible for us to tailor make a correctional program to them so that their recidivism can be uh, reduced. We have extremely sophisticated assessment systems in place initially when the offender comes in and as they go through programs, shortly before we present cases to the National Parole Board, when they are in the community. So we constantly follow the risk that these people represent. And if the risk goes beyond a certain 
relatively low point, we will uh, bring the individual back at least for a period of time to uh, get that risk under control again. I think that means a lot. One of the things the CSC has done in recent years, Ole Ingstrup says, is to foster changes in the attitudes of prisoners. This task is made more difficult by the fact that the CSC has inherited prisons from almost every era of Canadian corrections, many of them built on principles of isolation and control that don't correspond with the correctional service's current philosophy. But in their newer institutions, and the ones they've refitted, he says, they have been able to abandon the monolithic prison architecture of old and group prisoners together in houses where they have to learn to get along and to look after themselves. And they have also been able, he believes, to make changes in the code that governs prison life. Prisoners are a lot more ready to deal with the problems that led them into crime uh, through the programs that we offer than they were 20 years ago. There was an attitude 20 years ago that programs and uh, psychologists and uh, uh, social uh, work and whatnot was for the birds. That's not the attitude anymore. Of course, there are some hardcore people who still believe that. But by and large, uh, inmates want to go to programs and they want to participate. And uh, I think we have helped them realize that uh, the only way for them to get out of a life full of imprisonment and full of crime is to participate in some of these programs and uh, develop some skills to live in a different way after they have left our institutions. So in that sense, yeah, I think there has been a, a, a change, maybe even a significant change in uh, the inmates' attitude. Ole Ingstrup is proud of the CSC's record in reducing reoffending. But this does not mean that he therefore thinks that prison is the best place to send most offenders. Prison should be used only as a last resort, he believes. First, because reoffending can often be prevented even more effectively in the community. And second, because prisons, by their very nature, remain tough, potentially brutalizing environments. He has said publicly that he thinks Canada overuses incarceration. And he thinks, likewise, that some members of the public continue to hold an unrealistic idea about what imprisonment can actually accomplish. There are people out there who forget that the only reason we have these prisoners is that they couldn't manage them out in, in the community. They got totally out of hand. And then they, in a moment of despair, they send them to us. Uh, which in many cases is a very reasonable reaction. But then they expect us to do I don't know what to them and uh, turn them all into choir boys and they will uh, uh, leave in one long peaceful procession out of our prisons. This is not exactly what is happening. These people have uh, often uh, been in trouble with all kinds of rules and regulations in their school and their family and uh, uh, they've been through youth uh, institutions, they've been through uh, provincial institutions, and they have a huge number, uh, statistically, of social problems. Over 70% of them have drug and or alcohol problems. Half of them do not have a literacy level of, of uh, grade 7. Many of them have a history of broken employment and on and on and on it goes. So obviously the so-called raw material, if you, if you wish, that, that we get uh, is not exactly uh, the easiest. And yet people tend to think that 
Well, once they go through prison, they've got to be cured. It's got to be a totally different human being that comes out. That we can uh, not deliver. But we can deliver a hell of a lot more safety than we did a number of years ago. One of Ole Ingstrup's antagonists in the current parliament has been the Reform Alliance Party member for the British Columbia riding of Kootenai, Boundary, Okanagan, Jim Gauk. Jim Gauk has visited prisons in every part of the country as a member of the House of Commons committee that recently completed a review of the act which governs the Canadian prison and parole systems. And though he recognizes the CSC's achievement in reintegrating offenders into the community, he has come to the conclusion that there is insufficient discipline in many of their institutions. In conversations with both guards and prisoners, he says, he has heard repeatedly that troublemakers misbehave without serious consequences. You and I, living in everyday society, have consequences for every action that we take. Prisoners, by and large, inside have very little. I won't say they have none, but they have very little. And I think that's wherein lies our problem. We take someone, we put them into jail for six years, they get out, and then they'll have a lot of people that are sympathetic to uh, prisoners saying, oh, the poor person, they're having trouble fitting into society. Well, of course they are. For six years, they haven't had to measure up to the responsibilities of society. So that's one of the reasons that some of these people have so much trouble fitting back in. There has been no consequence of their actions for six years or whatever their time incarcerated has been, and all of a sudden they're on the outside where there is a consequence for your action. We're not giving them a good model to fit back in, and that may be part of why people have a problem. At the heart of Jim Goak's position is the view that prisoners have too many unconditional rights and privileges. The Corrections and Conditional Release Act states that offenders retain the rights and privileges of all members of society, except those necessarily removed by their confinement. Jim Goak argues that convicts should enter prison with no other right than decent treatment. As far as I'm concerned, once you're convicted by a jury of your peers and sentenced to a federal prison, you should lose all rights except the right to humane and healthful treatment. But I think you should have the ability to earn back those rights. I think the loss of those rights is a consequence of your crime. You should have the ability to earn back those by appropriate behavior. You've lost them because of inappropriate behavior. You should have the ability to earn them back by appropriate behavior. And likewise, if you then misbehave inside the prison, you should have the ability to lose some of those rights again. And that includes everything from uh, recreational opportunities, uh, work opportunities, getting paid for your work. You know, it's not a great pay inside, but it's still pay. Access to the canteen possibly even things like visiting, certainly conjugal visits, uh, right up to and including parole, including uh, the level of incarceration you're kept at, the facility. Uh, That should be a determination how do you get to more desirable facilities and less restrictive facilities. And when you misbehave, that should be a consequence moving backward. One of the keys to better controlled prisons, Jim Gauk believes, is the abolition of what is called statutory release, As things now stand, prisoners are automatically released at two-thirds of their sentence, and the onus is on corrections officials to show cause if they want to hold a prisoner to the very end of the sentence, or to warrant expiry, as it's called. Jim Gauk, speaking for his party, wants to see this provision removed because he believes it encourages prisoners to simply wait for release 
rather than working for it. It's my position, very firm, that we should uh, revoke statutory release. And uh, what I would agree to is replacing it with statutory consideration, which means that they automatically get considered for uh, release even without applying at two-thirds of their sentence. But we take the reverse onus uh, requirement out. And while I do strongly support the idea that it's better to have a prisoner released uh, with uh, supervision and with conditions placed on them during a reintegration period, I don't believe that we should just automatically open the doors and let people out. Some who would uh, keep statutory release argue, and and I've heard these arguments uh, from quite a few people, saying that uh, if you don't have statutory release and you're relying on the parole board to release these people, many of them won't get released and they'll stay till warrant expiry. Well, what kind of message is that sending out to the public? Saying statutory release causes to have released prisoners who cannot qualify for parole. In other words, who the parole board feels should not be out, but we're going to let them out anyway. That, that's a, to me, it sends a very bizarre message. I think what you need is you need more conditions in the system that makes it more conducive to prisoners behaving, saying you're not getting out, certainly before your sentence is up, if you do not behave. If you behave, you'll go from maximum to medium to minimum and then out. You'll get different privileges that others won't get that aren't following your behavior patterns. I'd like to make it so that if someone does not behave inside a prison and ends up, you know, maximum security, misbehaving all the way to warrant expiry, that they are still subject to a uh, six-month supervised uh, period when they're released. And if they commit another crime then, and, and they're convicted of that crime, then they go back to jail. That's straight. They have to have six months clear before they're released from supervision. Jim Gauk thinks that abolishing statutory release and creating more incentives for responsible behavior might have the initial effect of increasing prison numbers, but that it could well reduce them in the long term. He supports efforts to keep minor offenders out of prison, and in his own writing has been a strong supporter of community justice forums, which divert first-time, non-violent, youthful offenders out of the courts. In fact, he thinks the same kind of thing should be done with adults. But he is convinced that the current system is just too tolerant of the bad apples who refuse to reform. His whole philosophy, he has said, can be summed up in an old proverb. Fool me once, it goes, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1. I'm Paul Kennedy, and our program tonight is called To Hurt or To Heal. It's presented by David Cayley. Jim Gauck wants to see a sterner disciplinary regime in Canadian prisons, and to that end would grant prisoners only the rights that they earn. His proposal assumes that prison administrations will exercise the power to grant or withhold rights in ways that are benevolent and just. Alan Manson takes a more skeptical view of the correctional service. Manson is a professor of law at Queen's University, and one of the handful of Canadian lawyers who have consistently argued for the rights of prisoners during the last 20 years. He points out that the Correctional Service of Canada has, on occasion, abused its prisoners, as was recently shown by the Arbour Inquiry into the troubles at the prison for women in 1994. 
The inquiry found that the CSC had systematically violated the law under which it is supposed to operate. To Manson, the potential for such abuse is always inherent in an institution exercising a power so total and so removed from public scrutiny. Consequently, he worries about whether the CSC's existing disciplinary powers are being exercised fairly. One of the things he's been concerned with, for example, is how decisions to transfer inmates to other institutions are made. I'm a warden, you're a prisoner, someone comes and confidentially says to me, I know what David Cayley's been up to. And I hear this story and it's dreadful. And I'm a warden of a medium security institution, so I'm going to give you your 48-hour notice. You've got, you're entitled to, in writing, explain to me why I shouldn't transfer you to maximum security now that I understand you are planning X, whether it's an escape, an assault, something vicious. And you write back and say, well, I'm not. Well, you're going to be transferred because I now have confidential information that says you are. Am I obliged to provide you with that information? Well, no. So eventually you get to this maximum security institution. Maybe you'll be able to contact a lawyer. Maybe, and this is very, very unlikely, that lawyer will either volunteer to provide you with free legal services or maybe be able to persuade a legal aid plan to to fund it. Very, very unlikely. That lawyer is now going to challenge this decision-making process by having you swear an affidavit that I know nothing about this allegation, I wasn't doing X, I'm not involved in X. That's what goes in front of the court, along with the respondent's material, which will be an affidavit from a senior official, like a warden, saying, we had confidential information that the judge only sees what's written down on paper and rules on that basis. With only this limited information, Alan Manson says, judges have tended to side with the administration. His example indicates how vulnerable he thinks prisoners are. The right to judicial review exists, but it is difficult to exercise and very uncertain of success when the source of an allegation is allowed to remain secret. And it's because of his experience of how hard it is for prisoners to exercise their rights or make their voices heard, that Alan Manson remains a somewhat wary observer of the Correctional Service of Canada. He worries, for instance, that the CSC's new focus on community reintegration will work to the disadvantage of longer-term prisoners. My concern about uh, the Correctional Service of Canada today is not that it hasn't made progress, but while it's making progress especially through its, its, its new reintegrative focus and providing resources to those who are being moved out of the system. It's not paying attention to those who may well be in the system for a long period of time. There are problems in maximum security institutions, long periods of lockdowns within the institution where virtually all movement and programming is terminated for long periods of time. There are large numbers of prisoners who have mental health problems. There are special needs prisoners. So the point that I'm trying to make is that the new reintegrative focus, which is valuable and important, can't be pursued at the expense of putting on the shelf the hard questions. 
especially at a time when uh, we're seeing an aging prison population, when the number of people being re released on parole has reduced. The concern from, from my perspective is the number of people who may find themselves being ignored, especially because they represent poor release prospects. They have little in the way of skills. They have little contact with the community. Their contact with family and friends dissipates over time. So that you do see a number of people who've been in jail in Canada for very long periods of time who are not good candidates for release and are, in fact, being ignored. If you look at the statistics for the release of murderers in Canada, especially with our new, since 1976, first-degree murder sentence with parole ineligibility of 25 years, it is estimated that the norm will be service of 28 years, which, compared to other countries in the world, is extremely high and is very close to the United States norm, uh, where in most jurisdictions it's a life sentence without parole. Still, when you take into account executive clemency, etc., we're only a short bit behind them. Alan Manson's concerns lie with the long-term prisoners and with the weak, the mad, the inarticulate, and the isolated. There is a danger, he thinks, that limited resources will move to those with better prospects and leave the more troubled ones behind. He sees this possibility at work, for example, in one of the policies of the Ontario government. Shortly after the government changed in 1995, an, a number of uh, provincially sponsored halfway houses were closed. And in response to the, the concern, uh, the answer was, those resources are going to go into another mechanism the provision of electronic monitoring for people who are released. The first time I heard that, it stopped in my tracks and thought, but we're talking about two different groups of people. The people who need halfway houses are the people who don't have homes and jobs to go to and who need some help to find a way to reintegrate in the community or they're going to be back on the skids. The people who can benefit from electronic monitoring to uh, speed up their release to the community are people that have a home to go to. That's the whole point of electronic monitoring. It's a form of house arrest. You have to have a house. So it's two completely different groups of people. And it just struck me that one group has a high failure rate and resources had been taken away from them and plugged into a group that has a high success rate. So we're enhancing failure for one group at the same time that we're enhancing success for a group that's usually going to succeed anyways. And there didn't seem to be any kind of serious public debate about this. This particular decision of the Ontario government is just one instance of what Alan Manson sees as a growing trend towards hastily and carelessly improvised penal policy. Another example for him is the trend to longer sentences and longer periods of parole ineligibility for people on life sentences. Governments, he says, have begun to follow their electorates on criminal justice policy rather than leading them. Penal policy ought to be developed 
in a way that is responsive to real needs and the real situation. A few years ago, I remember one day getting the recent crime statistics that indicated that the rate of violent crime had diminished, which is, has been doing for a number of years. And the next day, seeing a press conference and watching one of the senior ministers being questioned about this, and the senior minister said, well, that's all well and good, but the public perceives it differently. We have to deal, we have to respond to the public's perception. I found that shocking. If the public misperceives the reality, surely it's the responsibility of the political leadership to try to inform the public accurately, even if it's not a particularly popular thing to do. And to suggest that because there's a misperception, we'll respond to the misperception rather than correcting the misperception is an abrogation of responsibility. There's no votes in appearing to be soft in crime. But the real response, it seems to me, ought to be the importance of the rule of law and some basic principles of fairness some basic principles of efficacy. We don't run around the world doing vicious things to people for no reason. At least in Canada, we don't, or we ought not. And the criminal justice system ought not to be doing vicious pe things to people for no reason. In tonight's program, Two quite different questions have been raised about Canada's criminal justice policy. First, is it just? And second, is it effective? The questions overlap and yet remain distinct. Alan Manson, for example, has raised the question whether a corrections policy that focuses on effectiveness and therefore gives the lion's share of its attention to those with the best prospects of rehabilitation, might not be unjust to those whose condition makes their prospects worse. In what remains of the program, I want to focus entirely on the practical question. What can be shown to work in corrections? It's a question that Paul Jandro has spent a long career trying to answer. Jandro worked for many years as a psychologist in Ontario prisons, and now heads the University of New Brunswick's Center for Criminal Justice Studies in St. John. When he began his research in the 1970s, there was a widespread perception that rehabilitation had failed and that all that could be hoped for from corrections was fairness. Paul Jandro set out to show that rehabilitation is possible. Working with a new technique called meta-analysis, which allowed him and his colleagues to accurately sort out the existing research, they gradually put together a clear picture of what works. Their findings can be boiled down, he says, to three principles. The first is that most effective therapies are behavioral. You have to target very specific behaviors. You're not dealing with the unconscious so much. You are not being non-directive. For goodness sakes, one needs to be highly structured and very directive in changing skills and behavior. I'd ask you to, or anybody, to think of it in this sort of way. If you want to change a long-standing skill, whatever it may be, a problem, how are you going to do it? Are we going to be rooting around the unconscious, 
goodness knows where that gets you. Often it can lead to, I think, worse effects. Are you going to let the person discover for themselves how to rectify their problems? You're not going to discover new solutions or strategies when you don't have them in the first place. It's just like learning new skills in a school or an academic kind of setting. You need direct, uh, you need to target those behaviors directly. You need to reinforce the new skills uh, continuously when they appear. And uh, you have to do it within the context of that person's environment. Paul Jandro's second principle is that effective interventions concentrate on those most likely to commit crimes, not on minor offenders. And the third is that programs that work focus on actual criminal behavior and not on the offender's personality or self-concept. These behaviorally-oriented programs must target what we call the criminogenic needs of the offenders. What does that mean in plain English? It means that the salient factors in offenders that lead to their continued criminal behavior are antisocial attitudes and values and behaviors, thoughts, beliefs, no matter how you phrase it, these are the strongest predictors of future criminal behavior. So if you're going to change the offender with any degree of success, you must have your behavioral program focus on, target these criminogenic needs, these antisocial attitudes, values, and beliefs, their skills. On the other hand, we know there are some factors, and this is an interesting feature, that are not good predictors of criminal behavior. By and large, these fall within the category of self-esteem, personal inadequacy kinds of factors. Again, when we look back at earlier attempts at treatment, we found therapists trying to treat the self-esteem of the offender, their personal inadequacies. Frankly, most offenders have a quite adequate self-esteem. Many of them are quite convinced that uh, they are good fellows. I'll refer to men since they are the great majority of, of offenders. Those programs, even if they're behaviorally oriented, that target these kinds of non-criminogenic needs are failures. Paul Jandro's principles are notable for what they exclude as much as for what they include. He has found, for example, that getting tough in all of its many variants either does nothing or increases recidivism. What works, he says, is well-trained people making a consistent, focused effort to in effect, re-socialize offenders. And when this is done, he says, he and his colleagues can consistently show a significant decrease in reoffending. On average, you will see, compared to good control group comparisons, a 25% reduction in recidivism, uh, in recidivism defined by any re-arrest or reconviction or reincarceration. Now, you could say to yourself, Oh my goodness, this effect isn't large enough. One of the problems, go back now, that corrections professionals like myself made over the years, that we were far too optimistic as to how effective correctional treatment programs would be. People in the, in the old days often talked about treatment reducing criminal behavior by 80% or 70%. An occasional study will do as well as that, but on average you're reducing criminal behavior by about 25% with these programs that have these basic sorts of principles. And this kind of overall treatment effect is not something to sneeze at. When you take a look at interventions in the psychological 
arena generally, never mind the criminal justice system, the average reduction in the problem behavior is around 25%. When you take a look at a lot of medical treatments, you will find on average a lot of medical treatments reduce the disease or problem by about 25%. And some recent studies, one by Mark Cohen, looking at how much you save by turning around the life of a high-risk chronic offender uh, over their career is uh, around a million dollars. So uh, relatively small gains have large effects when you take a look at it in those terms. Paul Jandro is talking about interventions taking place both in prisons and in the community. But programs administered in the community will generally be more effective, he says, because there, new behaviors can take root in daily life, which is where they will ultimately be tested. You're going to get a better bang for your buck, better results for a, a treatment program based in the community, because there you can work right within the natural environment of the offender. And in an institution, you do your best, you change behavior, and then out they go. And um, so as where there's, more, there's much more slippage in an institution uh, uh, treatment program. So one of the crucial links, which is often not done in, in, in corrections, is to make sure if you do something usefully and successfully in a prison, that when they get out into the community, a very intensive services have to be carried out to help that offender uh, deal with those issues. And we are attempting to do that here in uh, this part of the country. The, a state-of-the-art intensive probation supervision program is uh, being established here in uh, this part of New Brunswick, uh, joint funding from the uh, CSC and the province, whereby we will be trying to develop as intensive services as possible for probationers and parolees coming from the federal government, federal penitentiaries in the province uh, once they leave an institution. And um, so it's nice to see uh, under the leadership of the federal government or CSC putting money into uh, community corrections. The work that Paul Jandro and a number of colleagues have done over the last 25 years in defining effective corrections has made Canada a recognized leader in this area. And during this period, he says, the CSC, the Correctional Service of Canada, has done a generally good job in putting the principles he has outlined into effect. This is an agency that by and large, and I should note at the outset now that I get funding from them, so let's put that out on the table. But I think I'm being relatively objective and fair because I've had the chance to travel extensively and see other systems, is that they have had continuity in leadership. And it happens that the leader has a well-articulated view that supports research, that supports evaluation, that supports rehabilitative services. In contrast, I've come across so many correctional systems that are inflicted with uh, the deadly virus that is such a problem in corrections, and that is panacea philia, one quick fix solution after another. Too many uh, correctional organizations uh, have too many content-free administrators who are political hacks on appointments, and they'll pick any flavor of the month. CSC, on the other hand, has had a continuity vision and purpose, by and large, it's stuck to the task. And so after a number of years, it's in much better position to do something proactive. Why? In part because it respects experimental evidence. Respect for knowledge and evidence, Paul Jandro says, has not generally been the hallmark of corrections. 
This brings us back to our starting point in tonight's program, which was the political conditions that make the false promise of punishment so much more alluring than a patient, sustained commitment to reforming offenders. Paul Jandro has been in the game a long time, and he knows that the struggle will continue to be uphill. It's, it's interesting about the criminal justice system. Everybody is an expert. If I were to ask you or the audience why here in the Bay of Fundy the finback whale shows up about a month earlier and further inland than the right whale, anybody have a bright answer? No. People would be scratching their heads and saying, well, I guess we should ask a marine biologist that question. But when it comes to the criminal justice arena, when I speak to my classes, when I speak to audiences, what do you think we should do with a crime problem? Almost everybody has an opinion, and they think their opinion is right. And so that's one of the problems in, in failing to generate effective policies when it's uh, an area that so leads to quick-fix, common-sense solutions that are just opposite what the literature says. On Ideas Tonight, you've listened to the fifth and final program of To Hurt or To Heal. The series was written, produced, and presented by David Cayley with the assistance of Richard Handler. David Cayley is also the author of The Expanding Prison, The Crisis in Crime and Punishment, and The Search for Alternatives, published by House of Anansi Press. Technical production and studio direction was by Dave Field. Associate producers Catherine Hughes and Liz Nage. You can get a printed transcript of this series for $25 or a set of five cassette tapes for $39.95. To order by credit card, call us at 416-205-7367. Or send a check to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. The number, once again, for credit card orders is 416-205-7367. The executive producer of Ideas is Richard Handler. I'm Paul Kennedy. Coming up, the hourly news, then the arts today, and between the covers.